Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. On today's show we will be catching up with a few of the main story South American Football Show regulars, Simon Edwards and Austin Miller, and later we will be joined by Melissa Ortiz to discuss Colombia's failed Women's World Cup bid. Okay, I'll first introduce Simon and Austin. How are you doing, Simon? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Locked up inside, but using the time as productively as I can and running round and round in circles in my car park. So, yeah, not too bad. You know, the world's not great, but making the most of it. And it's been a while since we've spoken. Austin, how's lockdown treated you there in Argentina? Uh, the the pause should tell you everything. Uh, like many people, as good as can be hoped for, obviously frustrating and tiresome, but at the end of the day, aware of the bigger picture and happy to have a government that all things considered, is keeping that bigger picture in mind. So making the best of the situation as we can. Okay, and yeah, like I said at the start of the show, we will be discussing exactly how COVID-19 has affected football here in South America and what the plan is to bring football back. Um, Austin, you're kind of the man in the in the know when it comes to all things Commonwealth these days. Um, you know, I, I believe that there's... There's a plan for Libertadores to come back around sort of mid-September and the Sudamericana sometime in October. And it looks like the World Cup qualifiers might be happening in October. Do you you have any sort of more exact information on that plan? Yeah, so last week, Conable announced and confirmed that they intend to resume the Libertadores starting September 15th. Uh, That's a Tuesday with the resumption of the group stage, um, there's still four group stage matches to be played in the Libertadores. So match days three, four, five, and six from the group stage. So the plan will be to play those uh, in three weeks in September, then break for the FIFA date in October, which is when Conable intend to start the World Cup qualifiers. As part of those World Cup qualifiers, they've petitioned FIFA to add an international date in January of 2022 to kind of help that calendar get along so that Conable can fit in all 18 matches from the World Cup qualifiers in the format as originally planned. Uh, I don't believe FIFA's made a position on that, but from what I can tell, I think FIFA's intention is to try and play the World Cup qualifiers as originally planned. Then the sixth match day of the group stage would take place in October. Following that, the Sudamericana would resume at the end of October on October 27th. If you'll remember, the second phase of the Sudamericana is when the Libertadores teams come into the Sudamericana. So the Sudamericana has to wait for the Libertadores group stage to end in order to resume as originally planned. And then the Libertadores and the Sudamericana would kind of play out over the rest of 2020 with then the semifinals and the final of each competition taking place in January. The semifinals to take place the first and second week of January and then the final on a date that's yet to be determined Right now, still scheduled for both the original venues, the Maracanã in Rio and Mendoza for the Sudamericana final, sometime mid to end January on a weekend, most likely. So that's the so plan from the carnival. At the moment, yep. that, that's going to follow the same format, home and away legs in the knockout stages and all that. There's no, not going to be a copying of what UEFA have done and, and put all the knockout stages in sort of one city. Nope. 
The plan as currently announced and confirmed by Conable is to play the competition as far as the same format is concerned. So all of the group stage matches would take place at their originally scheduled venues or at least in the originally scheduled countries and or cities. Uh, there's a Conmobile protocol on how to, to conduct matches in the time of coronavirus. It's similar to a lot of the protocols we've seen as European football has kind of gotten back up and running. So that's the plan as of now. Um, Conmobile is obviously very um, cognizant of the fact that in this era, plans can change and change rapidly. Um, but that said, all of the kind of mechanics of getting football back, you know, you can't just flip a switch and have everything back kind of the way it was. So getting these plans in place, putting out a provisional calendar saying this is the calendar as we intend to follow it gives you the ability then to make more minor adjustments as necessary down the line. So that's the plan for Conable as a confederation. Obviously, the resumption of the Libertadores and the Sudamericana are huge. Those are the two biggest competitions on the continent, and those are the two most important competitions on the continent. And they're also, to be frank, fundamental to the finances of football on the continent. So the completion of those, even if it has to be in January of 2021 or be it in February, should that come to pass, that's really important for the Confederation as a whole. And so that Conable has these sort of plans to be working towards is obviously a positive sign. And uh, and do you know if, if the Copa America next year in Argentina and Colombia is is under threat at all from from this? I haven't seen anything to suggest that it is. Um, I think what happens, kind of as far as World Cup qualifiers are concerned, in twenty twenty will probably be the biggest determinant of that. Um, that Copa America obviously takes up a lot of space on the international football calendar. It's important, but, um, and obviously this is all just my opinion. I'm not in the know on any of this. There was just a Copa America in 2019. There's another one coming in 2024. Personally, I think it would be reasonable to, I think World Cup qualifiers should take precedence. Um, I don't know if, if no, that position is is held anywhere else, but that would be my if you have to play three or four World Cup qualifiers in June in place of a Copa America, I think that would be preferable to having to try and rejigger the, the World Cup qualifying format. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, well, let's find out what's been happening in, in each of the respective countries. First, let's have a look at Colombia. Simon, what is the, what is the situation there at the moment? So in terms of the general coronavirus situation, obviously, Colombia took quite early, quite strong. I mean, it has varied from area, from city to city. Um, the central government sets out the overall policies, but then local mayors can adapt those. And, and that's definitely been happening in Bogota and Medellin. Um, so Colombia delayed the you know a strong initial surge of the virus, but is now slowly seeing numbers rise we're expected to be heating the peak about now um hopefully that's the case but again this means that um it's been quite a drawn out process uh, which is positive in many ways of course it means that we haven't seen the number of deaths in the uk and, and elsewhere but it also means that the, the 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 financial restrictions have been quite significant and obviously in south america in general many people live day-to-day -day cash in hands, informal work, and that is very difficult to protect uh, those kind of workers, uh, even if the money was there. And, and of course, uh, it's far, far less secure financially here in Colombia. So it's been a difficult time. In terms of football, 
I mean, on one hand, of course, the situation is still up in the air. The government has said that training can resume. They can start doing more, um, a little bit more contact towards the end of August and into September. They can start football matches. But on top of just the the very basic um, health concerns, there's obviously financial concerns. Um, the Win Sports and Bet Play. Uh, who are the the TV channel and the sponsor have continued to pay the clubs um, since March, since when the league was suspended. But they've obviously, understandably, uh, expressed some concerns and said that you know this finance isn't going to go on forever. Or they're looking to um, reduce their investment until they can get uh, guarantees as to what the league will actually look like. Um, TV money makes up you know eighty percent of clubs' income for for many of the smaller clubs in particular. Um, and some of the players are still not being paid. Others have had their wage cuts significantly. So it's very important uh, to get the situation in regards to the league structure resolved. The Major, which is the kind of the FA the, or the, the, the organization that runs the Colombian Professional Football League, um, 20 of the professional clubs have voted to remove uh, the president, Jorge Enrique Vélez. Uh, as of today, there may be more. It may have already happened. Um, and that's tied to a anti um, anti competitive ticket uh, scandal, um, where the, some Colombian officials made a lot of money on the side from the 2018 ticket allocations, um, and that's been criticised. The the Minister of Sport hasn't demanded these officials be sacked, but has recommended that they maybe step down. So. There's a lot up in the air uh, in Colombia. Uh, in terms of the coronavirus, there's been 70 players who've tested positive so far from the first round of testing. Um, seven clubs are still yet to publish uh, the results of their testing. Some clubs are back in testing uh, in training. Um, they've confirmed that under-18 players can't participate in football for the time being. Um, but yeah, so that's where we are right now. Some of the bigger teams in particular are back in training. Some teams have done all the testing of their players and they're starting to get results back. Each club is finding two, three, four, five players or uh, members of staff have the coronavirus. And obviously that means they're not permitted to join the training. So in terms of when football could resume, um, if we are at a peak and things are going to decline over the next month, then they're looking at September. Um, but... There's still a lot of wrangling with TV and officials and Di Major is in a, all kinds of trouble. So it's not inconceivable that we won't see professional football this time this, this year. But I think September, October is probably, given if things can get resolved, um, when we're looking to restart. As I say, teams are back in training. They've been given the all clear to have friendlies and play football again next month um but we'll have to see how it goes things are still up in the air and how and how's it going there in argentina is there any plans austin for football to come back soon uh definitively no but obviously now that Commonwealth have 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 set out a date you know they've said september 15th that's kind of forced the hand of of the argentine government and fa and clubs because um the Libertadores clubs in particular are scared of being at a disadvantage for not having trained ahead of Libertadores matches. Uh, as it stands uh, here in the Buenos Aires metro area, uh, the entire city is still under what's called a quarantina estricta, a strict quarantine. 
So that means you can only leave in order to make essential purchases. So the ideas of, of football teams training is a long ways away, at least still here in the city, you would think. That said, this is Argentina and things can change quickly. Um, there's a protocol that's been sent to the country's health minister, uh, you know, the protocol to resume training, what sort of steps clubs would have to take, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is maybe that clubs could begin training again in August with an eye towards then those Libertadores teams playing in September, perhaps Libertadores teams resume training ahead of other teams, the teams that aren't going to participate in Libertadores. As far as what the domestic calendar will look like between now and the end of the year, should it resume? Again, it's Argentina, so anything can happen. Uh, the latest proposal from the FA is to split the teams into groups, have them play a group stage, and then advance to knockout rounds. The winner of that competition would then get a Libertadores spot. But it's important to remember that the Argentine FA has already handed out all but two of their Libertadores spots for next year. So this format would mean that River Plate, Boca Juniors, Racing, and Argentinos Juniors would all be already qualified for the 2021 Libertadores, and Racing, Boca, and River are all participating in the 2020 Libertadores. So the idea would be that those teams would probably not care at all about this tournament and would treat it as a chance to blood youngsters, play reserves, etc. Um this idea is still tentative. It hasn't been approved. I think something along these lines is probably what you'll see happen. Uh, there's actually two sets of group stages in the proposal. The best teams then advance on for a spot in the Libertadores, with then the teams who finish in the bottom of their initial groups playing on for a chance at a spot in the Sudamericana. It's needlessly complicated, as one would expect from any plan coming from the Argentine FA. And, of course, it includes a round of Clasicos, regardless of if you're in their group or not, because at the end of the day, Everybody wants to see River Boca, Rossing, Independiente, etc. So that's where we're at as far as Argentina. There's also the Copa Argentina, which could or could not resume. Lower level football, again, it's all still up in the air. There's not anything tentative, nor would you really expect there to be anything tentative. Uh, I think clubs will probably be given the okay to resume sometime in August. Um, and then we'll go from there as a country and we'll see what's happening. That's the situation in Argentina. We've heard about Colombia. Adam, what can you tell us about Chile? Obviously, in Chile, there wasn't consistent football to end 2019. So we're going on nearly 10 months now without consistent football? Yeah, Austin. So, yeah, in Chile this week, actually, the government announced that players um, can basically get a permission to train this week with their teammates. Um, and most teams, it looks like, who have returned to training, are training in three separate groups, very similar to kind of how we saw training resuming in, in Europe, of course, when, when you know, the, the squads kind of uh, split up into groups of about eight, and not eight or nine players, didn't they, at, at different times to use the training facilities. Yeah, and the rumour here is that the league should restart in about a month's time, I believe. Um, the Chile NFA will certainly be keen to get Chilean football in full flow before the Libertadores and World Cup qualifiers happen in September and October, respectively. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's, uh, it's when it does restart, um, there's going to be quite a few interesting situations to resolve. Colo Colo, the biggest club here in Chile, are, are still without a manager. All of this time, basically, they've been without a manager, so they've saved wages that way, I think is one way you could look at it, or 
maybe they're car- carrying out a thorough search for a new head coach but after the second hmm. I wonder which one it was <laughs> exactly um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let the listeners decide um, which one of those two options it was but it looks like um, once football does resume you, there's a title race sort of between Catolica, Union de Calera and Universidad de Chile uh, but it's going to be very interesting how that plays out obviously behind closed doors. Looking through South America in general, um, in Ecuador, the leagues were set to restart on the 29th of July, but there's potential there that it could be pushed back. Um, I've been reading today in Ecuadorian press that, yeah, there's a real possibility that could be pushed back one or two weeks. Um, In Peru, it was originally going to be at the end of July, but now it looks like it's going to be the beginning of August. 7th of August is, is the latest date that the league could be getting back over underway there. Paraguay, I think they're kicking off this weekend. I think that's going to be yeah, that's going to be the first South American league to come back. But I think there's an article on World Football Index written by Lewis Smith on that. Along with, uh, along with Uruguay, Paraguay have probably dealt with COVID-19 the best here in South America, it seems. And... Uruguay set are set to return on the 15th of August. So it was announced yesterday, I saw. So that's the info I could find from, from those leagues, Venezuela and, and Bolivia. Probably they're going to be looking at a similar sort of time, set time frame, sort of mid-August, I'd imagine, end of August maybe. But yeah, Austin, the biggest country in South America, is of course Brazil. And it's been the country with the most amount of cases, most amount of deaths, and um, and but shockingly, some might say um, they've actually managed to get their football, uh, their professional football back already. So Brazil is an interesting case for a lot of reasons, obviously, um, primarily because the season was suspended at the moment of the state leagues in Brazil, which means kind of the decision to resume rested with each of the individual state federations. And so that meant that things were much more regionalized. You weren't necessarily dealing with travel from you know Porto Alegre to Ceará or from Rio to, to Goiania, or, or something along those lines. The Rio de Janeiro State League wrapped up last night. Jorge Jesus' Flamengo champions again. Uh, they defeated Fluminense 1-0 last night, and I believe 2-1 on aggregate in the final. Um, Jorge Jesus, as it is, could actually be heading to Benfica. That's the, the big story in Brazil, as far as the actual football on the pitch is concerned. That return of the Rio State League was met with protest by two of its clubs, Fluminense and Botafogo, who were not uh, in approval of the return of the state league at any point. And then uh, kind of a longer drawn out fight as far as when training should resume, trying to ensure that those teams had enough training before their first match. I believe when all was said and done, Fluminense had about a week of training before they were resumed matches and Botafogo were in around the same boat. There was also an issue with the broadcast contracts uh, exclusivity with the the sta- the broadcaster global it was it, essentially a lot of different issues for a lot of different reasons um, but the Rio de Janeiro State League has wrapped up uh, the Sao Paulo State League the other big state league Palmeiras Corinthians Santos Sao Paulo 
That resumes this coming Wednesday. They have two more group stage matches and then the knockout rounds to play. The rest of the state leagues have kind of been filtering in and out of, of resumption. I think some of the smaller state leagues have resumed. Some have plans to resume. The national leagues, so the domestic leagues, the Serie A and the Serie B, are set to resume the second weekend of August. So that's August 8th is the date. They intend to play all 38 of their originally scheduled matches in the originally scheduled venues, although clubs have been given the option to move those matches to other venues should it be better for health conditions or or any other reason. With that season then wrapping up, I believe in February of 2020 is, is what the calendar reads. But all 38 games are scheduled to be played, and those games would then take place wrapping around the holiday season. So there's a match day scheduled for Boxing Day. There's a match day scheduled for New Year's Eve, um, which also is in the height of the Brazilian heat and summer. So that could bring its own issues. Also, without confirmed plans of what the 2021 Libertadores will look like as far as dates, uh, obviously that competition generally starts up at the end of January. If they play the 2020 Libertadores through the end of January, you think maybe a couple weeks to get that started. But countries will have to determine who's going to qualify. So there's a lot of issues to be worked through, but that's the plan in Brazil. Um, Most cases in the continent and also the first to resume football on any level. Um, Make sense of that, what you will, I suppose. And Simon, you wanted to talk about a story that has emerged in the last few days in Colombia about La Paz FC. Maybe you can explain to our listeners what that involves. Yeah, absolutely. So La Paz FC uh, this week have confirmed that they're going to be playing in the Colombian second division uh, moving forward. Uh, They'll be based in Bogota. The story behind the club is an interesting one and an important one. Uh, The club is uh, initially was set up to integrate and provide um, a a place for former Marxist guerrilla fighters, former members of the FARC who have been officially demobilized um, to play football. And they were also invited... uh, They also invited um, victims of the conflict in Colombia. This is an over 50-year conflict between the left-wing guerrillas and and the state. And, you know, it's been a huge uh, issue in Colombia. There was obviously a referendum on the peace deal, which was voted down. So it's been quite contentious. Uh, And this organization has taken quite the the bold step to try to provide uh, support and integrate as part of the government's broader initiative to integrate former guerrilla fighters into society, invited them to play for the team. Um, and the team has done well, has, has received some support, um, and is now going to be participating in the Colombian Professional Football League, uh, as well as a U20 side and also a women's team. So it's it's a, a bold statement. There are still people who uh, have understandably strong feelings about the guerrillas, who, as an organisation, obviously were involved in many very serious crimes but you know a lot of the members of the organization were were innocent uh, they were people who were looking to make ends meet in a country where uh, many areas are kind of left out and abandoned and these are you know recruited as children so in many ways um, former guerrillas are also victims of this conflict so I think it's very positive um, the the peace process has been stop start to say the least um, it hasn't it's been very positive in one regard, but it hasn't provided uh, the great solution we would have hoped. It hasn't been uh, enforced and supported in, in the way that it really needed to be. But this is one example where former guerrilla fighters, former 
these former members of this organization are being integrated into a, a legitimate society and are having work opportunities and and from what I've heard that they've got some really good footballers in there as well. So I think it's a really positive sign to bring together these former guerrilla fighters and victims of the conflict to play for this team. We'll have to see how they do, um, if they can, if they can uh, perform on the pitch and whether they're going to bring in some uh, professional players to support the ranks. But I think it's a, a positive initiative and I think it's uh, a symbol of what um, many hope that can be achieved um, post-conflict in Colombia and, and as part of the peace deal. This is kind of a real concrete example of something actually uh, coming for, to fruition and it'll be interesting to see how they do. They've got a nice blue and white kit, kind of reminiscent of your team over there in Chile now, Adam. Yes, certainly is. the. Uh, I, I quite like the design of the dark blue against the light blue, very reminiscent of San Marcos de Arica, indeed. Um Okay, well, we're going to move on now. We've got a special guest joining us to discuss Colombia's um, failed 2023 Women's World Cup bid. Melissa Ortiz will join us in a minute. While we wait for Melissa to join us, we're going to bid farewell to Austin. Austin, do you have anything to plug before you go? Shockingly, I do, which in a time of, of no football is not necessarily what you'd expect. Uh, I'll be a company man first. Uh, a couple of new Scouting Spotlight podcasts are out on your feed. I'm actually leaving this podcast early to record a couple of more Scouting Spotlights with Tom Robinson. So be on the lookout for those. Uh, as far as Libertadores content is concerned, uh, on the 4th of July, I published a piece on American players who had played in the Libertadores. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with how the piece turned out. I think it's really interesting, and anybody who's a fan of this podcast, I think, would enjoy that. So you can check that out at copalibertadores.com slash en. And as well, we also have a documentary, a Conmobile Libertadores production on Flamingo's 2019 Libertadores Championship, a six-part documentary, runtime of a little under two hours in six different episodes of about 20 minutes each, uh, in English or in Portuguese with English subtitles. Uh, the first two episodes are out now. Two more episodes to release on the next couple of Tuesdays. You can check that out on the Conmobile Libertadores Facebook page as well. And yeah, looking forward to a, a return of football. Uh, it, it's been a bit weird watching European football come back. I've probably watched more European football than at any point in my life over the past couple of weeks. Uh, waiting around and hoping that, that we can get, get things back going in, in a safe manner here on the continent. Yeah, so we're very fortunate to be joined by Melissa Ortiz, um, a former professional and and a former player for the Colombian national team. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Maybe you could just tell the listeners a bit more about yourself. I believe you're a journalist now as well, no? Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I... I wouldn't want to say I'm a journalist, although that would be really cool. Um, I've kind of converted my, I guess you say, playing days to now just being like a social media and soccer media talent uh, is my, I guess, now called expertise. Um, so yeah, I'm very active on, on social media, creating content around football, but also whether it's training videos, but also things about, you know, what's happening in, in different leagues or NWSL, um, etc. So it's been a quite the transition from playing days to building my own type of platform. But I love, you know, every day waking up and being creative and, and talking about what we are most passionate about. And that is soccer. 
indeed. And a, cu- a couple of weeks ago, you know, we we heard the news that Colombia was unsuccessful in its bid for the hosting rights to the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. Um, you know, in in that vote. Colombia received just 13 votes compared to Australia and New Zealand, who received 22. Commonwealth, they managed to get support from them, obviously, the, the organisation Colombia is part of, and also from UEFA, but the other confederations, unfortunately, voted the other way. What was your reaction to Colombia losing that World Cup bid? My, my reaction was... I mean, I was, I was pretty saddened by the news, of course, although, you know, from months previous when all this bidding was was first started, um, I, I didn't really have the highest of hopes for Colombia winning. However, when time passed and more countries had dropped out, more host, hosts had dropped out, that's when I was starting to, you know, gain a little bit of hope. And of course, the last, you know, two weeks or so previous to the final a confirmation of the host, I really had my hopes up. And I was trying to avoid not having my hopes up that high, but I did. Um, but, you know, honestly, I, I think that Australia and New Zealand truly, truly uh, deserved this and, and truly deserved to host the Women's World Cup. However, I do think that one, FIFA was very exaggerative in, in some of the um, – the pointage in, in, in its perspective uh, categories. So for instance, the, the hospitals or the security, you know, those are the things that I thought that they were very exaggerative. And I was, you know, I, I understood why the, the president of our football federation wrote FIFA um, on behalf of that. Now, um, I think that also, you know, with, with, with the way that Colombian football has been going over the past few years, yes, women's soccer has been growing tremendously, but at the same time, there's been a lot of drama. And whether it's in regards to women's football or whether it's in regards to, you know, the other dramas outside of women's football, but still involving the federation, um, there, I could see why FIFA did, of course, favor New Zealand in Australia. And Simon, what was the reaction there in Colombia to it all, and and has there been much fallout since? Well, I think um, I think Melissa's right. I think um, my personal opinion was initially, um, well, Colombia doesn't deserve this. Not for the for the commitment of the players, not for the quality of play. I've been incredibly impressed by a lot of female players in Colombia, um, and I've also been pleasantly surprised by some of the the support. Uh, you know, I, I, from England, we see sometimes a lot of macho comments, and Colombia's known for this idea of macho uh, identity and, and this kind of things. But I've seen a lot of really good support. I've seen women's games at one o'clock on a Tuesday getting more fans in the stadium than you'd see for a men's game at the weekend. So there has been a lot of popular support for the women's game. There's been some great players coming through. There's been, uh, you know, a lot of encouraging signs but you know as melissa alluded to the the support from the authorities hasn't been there the league has been stop start um the women's national team has been at times treated really poorly so i i from the outset i was thinking well you know the the players deserve it there will be a lot of enthusiasm but the officials don't deserve it but then again, you get to the day of the decision. And you think, what could this mean for women's game in Colombia? What could this? How could this 
re- revolutionise the the support the sport, and it would it would force authorities to to back the game and do what they should have been doing for the last few years. So I was kind of divided, and I think that's kind of reflected by, for example, journalists who've been working on the women's game have felt, you know, they we would love to see it, but you know these guys don't these officials don't deserve to have this important award and you see how Australia has supported the women's game compared to Colombia and I think Colombian football has built up a lot of enthusiasm and support in spite of the officials as opposed to as a result of the officials so for me I would have loved to have seen it Um, and I think Melissa's completely right the security aspects the idea of terrorism is very much exaggerated and reflects a bit of ignorance but there were things that weren't included in the report that perhaps would have gone against Colombia um, in terms of the behaviour of the officials uh, leading up to this decision. So um, there was definitely uh, some unnecessary concern. Colombia's hosted lots of tournaments. They've got a Copa America coming up. You know, security wouldn't have been an issue. And I think the stadiums in general are, are all right. Bit of work here and there, but, you know, for a Women's World Cup probably would have been okay. But the support or lack of from the, the officials and the organisation has been been pretty negative. So I think there is a lot of potential for women's football in Colombia, but I think that is in spite of officials rather than because of them so far. So opinions, I think, uh, I, I think many people reflected my my feelings that the Colombians officials don't deserve this. But then when it got to the decision, everyone was quite enthusiastic and excited by the prospects and what it would mean for the future. Um, and I think there's now a hope that things don't go back to how they were previously and that some of that in, that momentum uh, on the lead up to the decision can result in some positive changes. I think I would agree with that. And it, and it should really serve as m- motivation for the authorities here and the federations here in, in South America to get their house in order and to really put in a bid from one country here in Commable um, for maybe the next World Cup or, or the one after that. Um, and, and the next time that they are bidding, you know, they can be 100% confident that they've done everything they can to make that bid as strong as possible because I think that was my biggest reservation over the Colombian bid. You know, they couldn't look at look themselves in the mirror of a Colombian federation and say that they've done all they can to make that bid as strong as it possibly could be. And that's probably why they deserve to lose ultimately. But unfortunately, it was a big blow to women's football in, in South America, really, because with COVID-19, as we've discussed in the first half of this program, you know, that, that's already having a huge effect on the men's game, which is very well funded and, and supported here um, in comparison to the women's game. So just as the women's game looked to be coming coming up here in, in South America and, and making waves, um, you know, this, this virus has struck and, and, and really everything has, has come to a screeching halt, unfortunately. So how, how do we feel about how women's football in South America can sort of recover from this blow? Right. I think that first off, in order to recover from, from this blow, there has to be efforts in terms of marketing. And before that, actually, we need to know, we need to have answers of what exactly is going to happen. You know, in, if we focus in on Colombia and in the league, it's been just like Simon said, it's on and off and on and off. And actually, last year, 
if my teammate and I, Isabella, wouldn't have spoken out against the Federation and then after that grouped in the Women's Pro League, I don't even think there would have been one last year. Um, and now for this year, I think it's 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 not only going to be a huge economic impact on the clubs to, clubs to have a women's team, but it's also the perfect even excuse for them to use not to have a women's team. Now, however, I do, you know, hear and I heard the other day that um, the sport, the Olympic Committee or the like the government and, and, and the sporting side is working alongside the Mayor um, and the Federation to allocate funds to support women's soccer. So it's going to start from there. It's going to start also from having, you know, rules and regulations on how this is going to be managed so that it could be consistently played for the next year. It's not, you know, oh, is it going to happen this year? Is it not going to happen this year? Because these 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 soccer players are employees and if all of a sudden they're left without a job, then they have to look elsewhere like many have to go play. Like many have gone to Spain um, or to Italy. So, or if, if they can't, you know, then they have to find jobs somewhere else, you know, in, in their, in their, in their city. So I think that it has to come from the three entities, the Federation, the league, and of course the government to support this. And then with that being said, how can we use our marketing efforts to really enhance the woman's side of this game to really, you know, keep building on what we have already built um, and to entice people to once everything in, in COVID has, is, 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 is the environment is more safe after COVID, you know, that they could have men and women attend the games just like previously. So um, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a team effort. It's not something that's going to be done uh, within the next you know, few months after COVID is, is over. No, um, this is going to be another, uh, I'd say, two to, two to three years in, in, in the making to finally get some great results. But you know, hopefully we see the, the growth of women's soccer not take a huge halt because of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're bang on with the marketing idea. And obviously, first things first, you need to get the structure confirmed. We need to know when it starts or when it finishes. But what I would say is, um, as, I, as I was mentioning, my impression is that the public support is really there. Um, the attendances have been good, despite the lack of marketing and some of these games being scheduled middle of the workday. You've got full stadiums. You've got a load of great players. Linda Caicedo is like 14 and she's ridiculous. <laughs> Top goal scorer last year. It'll be great to see how she continues to develop. Um, plus, you've got a load of great number 10s. You know, the football is really good. And one thing I noticed as well is that, you know, you look on social media and people kind of have the attitude of, OK, so my team now has a second team. Oh, that's cool. That's more football. You know, Santa Fe. OK, now there's Santa Fe men and Santa Fe women. And, you know, it's been really refreshing um, to see that. Because, you know, coming from England, you know, people stuck in their ways. And I was so impressed to see that there's been public support. So I think Colombia in, in many ways has great talent. There's the potential for really good support for the league. But you just need to get your stuff together in terms of the organisation and, and things will go well. So this is a difficult moment and you're absolutely right in terms of the funding may be difficult to come by and all that kind of issues. But I do think there's a lot of really good footballers in this country. Um, and I think there's been evidence of popular support. The first ever women's final was the most attended club game in women's football, which is crazy um, and is amazing. And, and it was a good game. So I think there's a lot of talent. I think 
absolutely right. The women's players need security because right now you have some incredible stars, but it's difficult to have you know, 20 players in a squad when half of them aren't getting paid, you know, you're not going to have the top level and players aren't going to reach their potential. Um, so I think there's lots and lots of positive signs, but of course we, we need some structure, we need some things resolved so we can uh, see that fully fulfilled. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Melissa. Before, before you do go, um, do you have any final thoughts? And also, if there's anything you want to plug, then please do it now. I think uh, everything that that you and, and, and Simon said are absolutely correct. Um, granted, like going back to the Women's World Cup bid, as saddened as I was, like I I look forward to hopefully you know hosting a World Cup perhaps in the in the next round, uh, like in uh, in a good <laughs> eight years or nine years. Hopefully that 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 happens. But um, I'd say that. With the Colombian Federation, you know, it's time for them to really invest in women's soccer. I mean, you see Infantino, um, you know, giving speeches on, on the importance of, of women's soccer. And you see other federations um, learning from larger, more successful federations, such as the U.S. Women's National Team and their success and their development. So I think that with the Colombian Federation or with the federations in, in South America, I hope that this COVID is not an excuse to to lay back on it. This is the moment to really start to to give importance on the women's game, to invest, um, to develop, you know, from grassroots up. Just as Simon mentioned, Linda Caicedo, she is the future of women's soccer, as well as another player, Gisela Robledo, who is absolutely magnificent. So I just, uh, I have, I have a lot of hope and I hope that these federations and specifically the one that I played for, for many years, they won't, they won't let me down. Anything that you're doing and anything that you want people to check out? Um, well, right now I'm just continuing to be active on, on social media so people can check out my Instagram. It's Melissa Ortiz five. Um, as well as, as Twitter and Facebook, of course. And as of right now, I'm just kind of in the building of a, of a project right now of a podcast. Um, it won't be specifically on soccer, which is interesting because I know that's my niche, but this is why I am kind of uh, enjoying it. Uh, once I'll, we have it all set and done, I'll surely um, post about it, of course. But right now we're very much in, in the building phase of it. But I'm excited because... I've never, I've, I've been on podcasts before, but I've never hosted one. So um, just be sure to, to tune in and, and thank you guys for, for having me. Sure. Well, we'd love to have you back at some other point in the future. That'd be great. Simon, is there anything that you want to add finally at the end of this pod? And also, um, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, no, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. But yeah, just, you know, Colombia's got great talents. Catalina Uzme as well is a is a great leader, a great player. Lacey Santos, oh, there's so many great women's players. And it's cool. There's such, such different styles and personalities. So definitely check out women's football when you get the opportunity in Colombia because it's, it's really exciting. So I just hope these girls get the platform that they deserve and hopefully looking forward to seeing more women's football in the future. Adam, what do you anything you want to plug before we say goodbye? Um, just that there's uh, a couple of articles I've written in the last month up on World Football Index, a couple of scouting profiles, one on a really exciting Chilean winger called Carlos Palacios, uh, who's currently at Unia Española, and 
Also one on the Ecuadorian defensive midfielder, Moises Caicedo. He's, for me, the future of Ecuadorian football. Um, so, yeah, uh, check those out if, 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 if you can. Um, and, yeah, the only other thing I'd just like to say at the end of this pod is another huge thanks to Austin, who joined us in the first half, Melissa, who joined us in the second half, and Simon, for you, accompanying me for the whole, um, the whole pod. Um, and it's just left for me to say a huge thanks to our listeners as well and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and it's goodbye.